Welcome to episode six of the Membrane Labs podcast. Is that right? Episode That's six. right. Uh, yeah. So I'm here uh, here with a guest, Dino Chilotti. He's my boss, and uh, he's actually the guy that inspired us to start this podcast. Um, so we're pretty excited to have him on today. Um, so Art's out of town this week. Uh, so once again, he's not going to be here, but uh, hopefully we can still have an entertaining uh, cast for you guys. <laughs> Uh, so I guess you want to say hi, Dino? Yeah. Hello. Um, I'm Dino. So you're in... I'm you, Tyler's boss. <laughs> <laughs> you're in Germany right now, right? Yeah, I'm in Hamburg. Yeah, so it's it's fairly late for you. Um, so we're actually recording this podcast on the Thursday um, so that, you know, we don't have to uh, stick Dino in front of a microphone in the middle of the night on Friday. Uh, Thank you for that. appreciate it. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, this will come out tomorrow, but... Um, I think most of the topics that we talk about will still be relevant. I think so. Yeah, so I, I guess to start off, I kind of wanted to just start asking you a few questions. So um, for anybody who's not really familiar, Dino's running uh, Membrane Labs Canada, which is uh, where Art and I work. Uh, and we're doing a bunch of sort of interesting crypto, or crypto projects in Ethereum. Um, none of them are in a production phase yet, but... Um, that's kind of the focus of our little office in Victoria. And I guess that's kind of your brainchild, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I kind of just got uh, got a little bit of inkling into uh, blockchain or at least Bitcoin back in 2013, I guess. I tried to start mining and failed horribly. I just couldn't figure it out. Um, but back then it was also a lot harder to do. Um, and then it disappeared for a while, but then after my, uh, I started working on a music company about three years ago and decided there could be some applications after I saw what Ethereum could do. And yeah, thought we should start a little, uh, R and D lab to test out, uh, how we can use blockchain to try and solve some problems in the music industry. Yeah. So 2013, that would have been, uh, kind of when it was starting to pick up momentum again, the whole crypto uh, universe. Yeah, I mean, that was before, pretty much before Ethereum or anything. There was yeah, pretty when, much only Bitcoin at that time. When, when Bitcoin was but, starting to get some attention, though. Yeah, exactly. I think it had a. It was one of those spikes where it went all the way up to $800, or I think at that time it was maybe 800 euros, if I remember correctly, um, which was huge, and everybody's like, oh, this is ridiculous. It's going to crash, which it did. I mean, it yeah. came back down, but then obviously we all know where it went to after that. So, yeah. So, so I guess that means that you've been pretty um, interested in the topic for for quite some time, then. Um, yeah, so. I mean, I wouldn't uh, profess to say that since 2013 I've been studying it deeply. Um, it was kind of on my radar, uh, and then, um, as I said, I just tried to dig into a little bit. Um, tried to start mining, but I was really had no idea what that meant. I was on my laptop, and yeah. Bitcoin was too difficult. So I think I tried Dogecoin. Uh, I tried a few different coins at that time. Uh, that may have been 2014 by that point. And um, yeah, anyways, didn't I, I think I mined some coin that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and yeah, that was about as far as I got. And that kind of died down. And then I just stayed on my radar for another maybe two years after that before I really dove down into the deep, into the depths. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common way to get started, right? You kind of get excited about it and then uh, you try some mining and then it doesn't really work out. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that, that's pretty much what I did too, right? So um, definitely, uh, definitely a common route to take, I think. 
Uh, yeah, I've definitely heard that story from others as well. So yeah. So what uh, what year did you start uh, the Membrane Labs projects? So we founded uh, at that point. It wasn't called Membrane Labs. It was just Membrane Entertainment Canada. Yeah. Um, which we founded at the end of uh, twenty sixteen, uh, late twenty sixteen, and um, yeah. So that's kind of when we got started, and we just had one person on staff in early. Um, I guess, when am I, 2017, and then uh, worked through that. So that's kind of when it got started, and then we branded it, I guess, as Membrane Labs uh, about just a little less than a year ago, or even, yeah, maybe eight months ago or so. Yeah, I think it was about eight months ago, because I was there for that uh, that change. Right. Yeah, so that yeah. that initial project, that would have been the Treble Key project, right? Yeah, so that's where it started was with uh, our first concept to try uh, or to build was uh, treble key which is the uh, ticket management system so we're trying to put tickets and concert management uh, on the blockchain in this case ethereum uh, in order to originally the idea was to try and combat like scalping and fraud and that sort of thing uh, obviously as we got building there we found that there's other applications but that's uh, still the the core uh, the core solution that we're uh, we're trying to build yeah. Um, so, like, when you uh, when you initially thought of this kind of um, uh, sort of solution, and you you had to look for some kind of uh, a problem to actually pursue, uh, <laughs> like how how did you convince, like, uh, for example, your boss that this was like a good solution? Because that's something that I've heard from a lot of people that they're kind of they have an idea, but then it's really hard to convince someone who has the actual power to make a decision that like this is a good idea that we should pursue at least to, to know a little bit more about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Basically what it came down to was I uh, decided I wanted to try and have a division of our company, which is based in Germany, uh, member and entertainment group and have a division of that, that I could call my own as my own little baby. And so I pitched, um, basically pretty much put together a pitch deck and sat in a room with him and pitched him on us setting up Membrane uh, Entertainment Group in Canada uh, to do what we do, but also in Canada, and then uh, wanted to use that as a hub for exploring new technologies. And we actually talked about a few different ones um, from blockchain and uh, virtual reality. And um, I can't remember what the other one was, but there was there was a couple different uh, things like that that we wanted uh, that I wanted to explore and uh blockchain was the one that i had the most knowledge about and that he was the most interested in and so yeah we, we decided to pull the trigger on that and he gave me some access to a, a small fund to kind of kick things off and get things rolling and then also especially with uh, treble key we actually uh, were uh, fortunate enough to get funding from uh, creative bc so um that's uh bc the bc music fund at the time, and uh, that helped us fund uh, the initial uh, kind of phase up pretty much until until now. Um, so, for Treble Key, so that's been good. Yeah. Okay. That's um, that seems like a pretty normal way to go about things. You know, no ICO involved. <laughs> yeah. No. At that time, I mean, there was rumors and rumbles. At that point, um, we had thought about doing that, and I guess from a principal point of view, I just couldn't get my head wrapped around the need for a separate token uh for what we're building so that's why we didn't go the ico route um i'm sure 
probably some people, including my boss, don't agree with that, given <laughs> how much money has been raised <laughs> uh, by other projects on that route. But uh, I'm, I, I still think we made the right decision on that. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I, I often think that the ICO route is probably not the best way to build like a sustainable product. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, there's so many projects. Even if you look at Ethereum, I can't remember what they raised on their. They did an ICO, but um, this was back before ICOs were the in thing. And I think they raised at the time, what was it, like 15 million or, or something like that, some relatively uh, high but reasonable amount. And they've built this massive ecosystem. Um, and so to see projects now that are even building on top of Ethereum and are raising hundreds of millions, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. There's no, there's no reason that they need that amount of money, especially not if they've set it up that they actually have access to all of that money right off the bat. Um, and the other part of it is that it's it's actually hard to manage money, right? Yeah. So when you've got that much money, how to properly deploy those funds over a a realistic time period is is not easy to do. I mean, everybody thinks it's yes, it's easy to spend money, but it's not <laughs> easy to spend money correctly. I guess. Yeah, no, I, I kind of agree with you on that point as well because a lot of these uh, really large projects that have a huge amount of money uh, seem to seem to flounder, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of uh, it's kind of strange to watch, but I guess it makes sense when you think about these teams that are you know less than a dozen people, some of them, and they're they're raising tens of millions of dollars. It's like how do you even distribute that money on a fair basis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, even if you look at what we've done, uh, considering how little money, we're definitely far from the millions um, in terms of spending, uh, and I think. If we look at what we've built with Treble Key, we've pretty much built a, a working proof of concept. It's live on on the testnet. It uh, works. Uh, you can set up your events. You can buy and sell tickets. Um, and within about a week from now, uh, if you uh, <laughs> stay on schedule, <laughs> um, you'll be able to then actually use those tickets to uh, to enter the concert uh, in theory. So uh, we've built quite a lot there. Uh, and that's without any external funding. That's purely self-funded from us and uh, really on a, a shoestring budget. So uh, there's really no, of course, if we had a ton more money and millions of dollars, we could have hired a huge senior development team and uh, we could be a lot further ahead, I'm sure. But I also think we've done pretty impressive work uh, given uh, how small our team is and, and the kind of uh, money we've spent. Yeah, I think so too, um, and that that is really the part that kind of baffles me about the the bigger teams and how much money they end up with. Because sometimes you watch these projects go for you know months and months, and it seems like they don't even make milestones. And I'm sure that mm-hmm. they do internally, but uh, from what we can see, at least sometimes it's a little bit like like what are you doing with all that money? You know, you've got you, you see some of the pages for some projects. I'm not going to name any individual projects, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, they'll have like 12 devs or something like that and a marketing team and, you know, this and that. And the only visible change is that their website gets restyled every month and a half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and they have a few blog posts here and there, right? Yeah, like what, what's going on here? Yeah. So I, I don't no, know. I mean, I know that they spend a lot of money. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. I, I was just going to say, I know that a lot of the money is spent on things like marketing, right? So you get you hire some designers and marketers and press agents, and uh, and so you're spending a ton of money there. And then, of course, if you've got senior devs, then they're 
you know they're not they're not cheap uh, so uh, you've got that going and then we also a lot of the time there's not a lot of transparency so we don't know what they're paying the founding team either um, which could be quite substantial yeah i don't imagine many ico founders are uh, you know cutting themselves out of the deal <laughs> no exactly doesn't really seem like their mo okay so that um that's quite a bit about uh, sort of how we got to where we are. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, we're also working on a couple of other projects, right? And we've talked about those uh, fairly extensively in the podcast before. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily want to get into too much about what they are. Um, but going forward, are you planning on continuing with uh, sort of the R&D aspects and uh, trying to continue to like increase the momentum that you've got on this project? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, there's definitely uh, kind of a cadence um, that I've also even seen in the past, but up till now and and going forward um, of kind of peaks and valleys. uh, And I think so probably the next three months or so is going to be uh, some refocusing on priorities. As as you said, we've got three projects uh, underway. And and so what I want to do now is is really take a, a look at those projects and how we're working on them and start to consolidate uh, focus and then uh, yeah keep running with it but um, definitely yeah definitely the plan is is not to stop so uh, I think I think we've done some good work and there's a lot more that I want to uh, uh, kind of prove out uh, with these concepts and part of what I wanted to do uh, and why I I kind of encouraged you guys to start this podcast as well as uh, you know host the meetups that we've been hosting at the offices is to to start building a bit more of a kind of local interest and knowledge base and, and get more communication happening about um, just what we're doing, even if it's peripheral to the podcast. Because um, I think that's one of the things that we haven't done well to date is really uh, communicate what we're doing. So we've been building uh, a lot in-house, but we haven't done a, a great job of really marketing and promoting. Obviously, part of that is, is because of you know uh, budget constraints and, and uh, time constraints. But that's something that I'd like to start doing now is start communicating uh, what we're building and start bringing, hopefully, uh, find some some other people that are uh, interested in the project, potentially some investors or, or things like that, uh, other people to get involved and, um, yeah, just uh, grow it in that direction as well. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that we've done a pretty good job of starting on that already. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, f- I found that uh, since that we started doing the meetups, uh, We've actually met quite a few people who are interested, and uh, that's that's actually pretty nice to see, um, to have a, a bit of a community starting to form in Victoria at least. So yeah, I agree, and I, I think what's also been interesting for me is even though we started, um, you know, the podcast really between you and Art and uh, and Art hosting uh, the meetups. Through that, we've also met other people, as you said, and even uh, it's been really cool to see people like Eric, who used to uh, work with us. Uh, he's now come back uh, not to work with us, but but to also be involved in uh, in what we're doing. So using our space uh, to host his own meetups. Um, he came on the podcast previously, and then also guys like Jordan, uh, who we met through uh, through his Slack channel, and then he's come on the podcast, and I think he might even be uh, also hosting a meetup soon. So really, it's been great to, to build that community locally 
and uh, and get more people interested, as well as uh, even just more uh, avenues for communication to chat about the different projects that are going on even outside of what we're building, because it really gets the mind flowing of what's possible in the ecosystem. Uh, so that's been uh, a lot of fun as well. Even even though I'm at a distance, it's it's been uh, fun to kind of be part of and coordinate and, and watch. So. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I'm glad that you're uh, you're so willing to pursue it um, because I think that if, if no one really has the drive to, to push some people to actually get together, meet up, and, and kind of discuss things, it kind of fizzles out pretty easily. Um, mm-hmm. And until recently, I think you could see that even, uh, even in some of the Slack channels and things like that, you get people who show up and are super interested for a week and then you never hear from them again. Yeah, that's really common. I've had a lot of kind of meetings with people who say, hey, I've heard about what you're doing. I'd love to talk about it. And so I go for coffee with them or I meet with them and they say they're really excited. And so I say, yeah, join our our Slack channel and they'll come in and they'll make one comment and then they disappear. And I I mean, that's totally understandable. We all have our own lives uh, to live and we've got jobs and and other uh, obligations. So it's hard to, you know, unless you're really, really interested in a, a particular topic, uh, such that it becomes a kind of hobby that you're involved with. Um, it's it, it's hard to maintain all of those different uh, communities and groups. So um, it's definitely been a piece of what we've been doing is to even uh, admittedly push you guys to to try, you know, uh, just, hey, just host the meetup, see how it goes. Just record a podcast, see how it goes. And um, and I think that's that's fun for me as well as uh as kind of a manager um uh, to to see to test the boundaries as well of what you guys are willing and and, uh, and able to do which is great yeah see what you could force a few uh a few computer science types to uh to do socially yeah exactly break out of your shells a little bit yeah no it's, it's been pretty fun um so i i guess the uh the ultimate conclusion that we can draw is that you still have uh a lot of faith in the kind of potential of blockchain and uh, despite the current downturn. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, it's funny because people, uh, other people that I speak to um, that are into th- that bought some uh, crypto at some point, they're kind of coming to me now and saying, see what I told you it's gone down. Like what's going on with the markets. And okay. honestly, like I barely look at the price anymore i'll look at it every now and then because we do a little bit of mining here and there um but to me the interesting part is more what we can build with it um and the the price is something that will normalize we don't yet know what the price is supposed to be and so right now up till now the price has been really driven by speculation as opposed to um use and so until we can actually see the price get to a point where it's not driven because people are speculating and buying because they think it's going to go up or selling because they think it's going to go down, but actually using it um, for a purpose. That's when we'll see it get to its its true value. And uh, yes, I, I definitely hold uh, some crypto and I hope it goes up because that's always nice. Uh, it helped, you know, pay for uh, some of my student debt. But um, but at the same time, I, it's not what I'm focusing on. So uh, I don't really uh, care that much. Of course, if it crashes down to zero or something, I'll be a little bit upset. But um, but it's not really what I'm what I'm focusing on. I definitely still have a lot of faith in the in the technology and what we can build with it. And I don't think that has to be directly uh, 
proportional or di- directly linked to the, the what the price is doing. Okay, I actually I agree with you in a lot of ways about that. Um, I I also think that the technology is the interesting part and the kind of value of it sort of secondary to to the potential of like the actual underlying uh, sort of concepts and ideas that are powering it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think part of it too is that um, there's so many people involved in the space um, in different ways. So of course, there's developers working on projects. Uh, there's people like me that I'm not a developer, but I'm really interested, and in. I try to do my best to read as much as I can and and uh, get involved by you know starting a little lab um, to to build on it. Uh, but then there's a lot of people that are uh, either traders uh, professionally or people that are not tra- not professional traders, but heard about this thing called crypto or Bitcoin and got in and, and spent money. So um, there's there's a lot of different interests in it right now that we'll see kind of, I guess, wash out uh, over time Yeah. Uh, before it gets to uh, gets to its true value. Yeah, it seems like the, the speculation um, and the, the really extreme price changes that we've seen in the past six months, say, um, mm-hmm. at least from what I can tell, it seems almost like it's a bad thing for the overall health um, just because you get the public, like you don't get like a consistent sort of public interest in the, in the ecosystem so much as like people get super interested and then it crashes and they're like, Oh, this is, I always knew this was going to happen. Just like you were saying, right? Yeah. I, I sort of agree with that um, in the sense that what is good about sometimes with the crashes is that it, it does kind of, uh, <laughs> clean out some of the waters a little bit so a lot of people you know they they get out because of it um and so it can um at least clear out some of the speculators now of course professional traders will know that they can make money on uh, both sides and same with you know uh, exchanges are definitely they make money on all trades no matter what direction it goes so they're not complaining um and at the same time if the price was flat uh and wasn't going up and down that would be a lot uh, less interesting for the people that are speculating, yeah, right? That's true. That's true. So, so um, in a way, uh, the the volatility is what gets people, uh, the speculators, interested, and I'm more interested in seeing some of them stay flat. Especially if you think about our projects, right? Um, when you're setting up a concert or buying and selling a, a concert ticket on Treble Key, each one of those transactions costs money. Right or yeah. costs in our case uh, ether. So um, if if we could if we knew what the price of ether was doing and it was relatively uh, flat, we could then better predict how our product should work, or we could think about uh, ways to to build our contracts around that. Whereas right now we're building those smart contracts. Essentially, we're just trying to make them as small as possible because we want to reduce the cost of the transactions. But at the same time, we don't know if uh, it's going to cost you know twenty dollars to just to buy a ticket, um, or or if it's going to cost a few cents or a dollar, uh, and that's really makes that's one of the things that makes the project uh, a bit more difficult to predict what it's going to do. Yeah, it's definitely hard to um, to make decisions based around something where the the costs could be you know very reasonable compared to today's alternatives, or mm-hmm. if what you're building ultimately will be priced out by the market, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it kind of defeats the project if if the congestion and, and uh, transaction fees uh, go up so high that 
they uh, they're higher than the transaction fees from third-party sellers that we're trying to combat are right. So, um, so that's definitely one of the things that makes makes it difficult. That uh, of course, at the moment, we're just hope. You know, it's built on hope as far as that particular piece of the puzzle. Um, but I still think there's um, there's a use case here that, uh, and I think it's proven out by the market. There's there's other competitors uh, or other projects that are doing very similar things to us. Um, so I think that is a testament to the fact that there is a market for this, there is a problem here that everybody sees or that a lot of people see that yeah. are trying to solve. So at least that part I'm, I'm confident in. Yeah, I would say that definitely the uh, the other projects in the space, as well as um, the general sort of public outcry about the problem itself, mm-hmm. pretty good validators that the concept at least has some legs. So yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of public outcry, which is good. Um, I mean, it's it's bad that it has to be there, but it's good that it's happening. Um, there's also just recently um, Ticketmaster just shut down. Uh, I can't remember. If, I can't recall if they shut it, them down already or if they said that they will shut down two uh, secondary ticketing platforms that they own. They're just going to shut them down entirely. So, so that's a good sign that they're trying to play along. Obviously, that doesn't, in a way, that that's a good thing for the market in general, uh, which which is what I care about. Uh, it's also, in a way, bad for projects like ours because the bigger the the gap is between the current market and what uh, the solution that we provide, obviously, the the more attractive our solution is. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's the you know the the artists and the fans that uh, are really what we're trying to solve for they that's who matters so it doesn't matter how we get there i guess as as long as the market uh is fixed and it's not a bunch of people that are just speculating on ticket prices that are walking away with uh all the profits yeah yeah uh, i think that uh the direction that you're taking with it is is probably the most balanced one if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, like what, what we're talking about here um and the kind of general concept I think that other projects have focuses on other parts of the problem. Um, and again, I don't really want to talk specifically about any individual other project. Sure. Um, just because obviously we have a little bit of a conflict of interest in our opinions. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, some of them have um, have more emphasis placed on actually um, fighting like person-to-person scalping or, for example, high ticket prices themselves. Uh, and I, I often think that they kind of missed the point um, mm-hmm. where, you know, we talk about trying to eliminate the really industrial speculation that seems to be plaguing the market. And I think if you could get rid of that, the rest of the problems would be kind of a drop in the bucket. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I think you're right. Um, there's definitely that even, for example, with our project, right, we built right from the beginning, we uh, built it with the idea of that there could be a distributor uh, in between the uh, the event creator or the promoter um, and the the end consumer. So a lot of uh, other projects or some other projects started uh, with trying to be very purist about it and only creating a ticket, uh, kind of a, a direct peer-to-peer type situation uh, or um, where a promoter would create a concert and sell directly to the fan. And, and that was the kind of structure. Whereas we can, ours allows for that, of course, um, but then we've also allowed for having a, a middleman because at the end of the day, what we want is to facilitate the market in the most efficient way possible and not assume that the middlemen are always bad. Like sometimes they do a good job of actually marketing 
a concert or going out there and finding fans and marketing to fans and, and, and selling the tickets. So, um, you know, uh, I don't want to assume or expect that a concert uh, promoter or a band can do everything by themselves. And so, or yeah, or I think, I think, to. or even wants to, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think that that makes sense. And trying not to, um, necessarily completely rewrite the whole script of how the system works right because i'm sure that at some level there's a reason that the market has ended up this way like there have been factors that push it in this direction because i don't think anyone set out in the beginning to say oh let's create a system where we waste as much money as possible and give it to people who <laughs> right. don't. like you know what i mean yeah um, yeah i mean th- there's a part of that that comes from just historical factors of how tickets were sold uh, in the past. Yeah. Uh, of course, the internet uh, kind of threw a wrench in that. Um, you know, before uh, it was kind of that situation of a band uh, wanted to have a concert or at least a venue uh, paid a band to come and play, and then the venue had to sell those tickets, and so you would go to the box office, and in in order for them to sell more, they would hire somebody uh, to distribute those tickets elsewhere uh, through other avenues in order to try and ensure that they sold those out. And so that kind of structure of having the person who's putting on the event and the person that's selling the tickets um, has kind of evolved in that direction of having those two separate parties. And so I do see a way for that to be consolidated. And it has, I mean, of course, um, Ticketmaster was not the traditional big distributor, right? Or or ticket seller. Um, But they provided then through, um, through the internet, they created a a new way of, of distributing tickets, which was more efficient than, you know, somebody trying to sell through uh, the local coffee shops or, or, or other uh, brick and mortar stores. So, um, so that makes sense. And, and I think that what we're creating, you know, today it's not impossible to sell without Ticketmaster. It's just that people go to Ticketmaster to find their tickets. So yeah, you can put it, set up your own website and sell your tickets directly today. There's nothing stopping somebody from doing that. In fact, it's easier than ever to do that. Yeah. Um, the problem is people, it's the discovery problem. Just because you have a website doesn't mean people will know that you have tickets for sale there. So um, so that's where that kind of centralization around Ticketmaster comes in. What I think is interesting about what we're building is that those tickets are all, uh, if it works and if everybody uh, uses it, then those tickets are all created in a single system, but that doesn't mean that they have to be sold through a centralized platform. So, um, you know, everybody can be using the treble key backend um, and create their own front ends. And so you can still search and people can provide better uh, experiences uh, depending on what their front end looks like and can add on uh, on top of that. So I I think it, it has some interesting potential depending on how people end up using it. Yeah, I think so too. I especially like what you're saying about the discovery uh, aspect of it. Um, in that, if you had a, a unified backend, but the front end was different, you could let people continue to use whatever platform they currently like as discovery, and mm-hmm. uh, still still kind of interact with ticket sales platforms in the same way, despite having uh, a less of a impact on the final price. Yeah. I mean, it it happens today through centralized systems. If you look at things um, like flights or hotels, that already happens. You go to Expedia or Hotels.com or Booking.com. That's essentially what those places are doing. They're 
taking available inventory from airlines or from hotels and making it available through a different platform. So yes, the hotel is still selling tickets directly through their own website, but they're also allowing other people to sell through their websites. And those people are all pulling from the same bank of of uh some of them have exclusive rights over over some portion of hotel rooms or things like that but at the end of the day they're all pulling from the same bank of uh, of seats and um seats on planes and rooms in hotels but they're just providing a different front end uh user experience um and they're charging for that and that's fine uh, because some people like it they rather than trying to look at each hotel they can look in one place they get a consolidated um response as to what hotels they're looking for and then you know things like hotels.com provide you you know the almost like the coffee punch card where you buy ten, uh, 10 nights and you get one free um and so they're all trying to do it in different ways which is great that's what we want is we want diversification of how these tickets are sold uh, but we want to do it in a way that reduces the the cost to the end consumer and actually sends um the money and the profits to the people creating value so if that person is creating value by creating an excellent uh, user experience on the front end then why shouldn't they get paid for it um but today the problem is that people are not doing that right uh they're they're buying something and then just reselling it at a a markup because they're able to essentially steal those tickets uh, off the market through good uh they've built a good technology that can buy those tickets before uh, faster than anybody else can which is great i mean at the end of the day they're not doing technically not doing anything unfair they've they've you know they're playing by the rules uh we just don't like uh the way they're playing and so we're trying to build a better game yeah yeah that was uh that was kind of a long speech there but uh, yeah sorry about that (laughs) yeah i'm not sure which points to really address other than i think that that was uh that was pretty uh interesting to listen to um do you think that it's realistic that those large parties would be willing to uh, compromise to reduce the loss in the market? Um, it depends where we're looking at it. I mean, when we talk about uh, scalpers or, or people, uh, you know, ticket touts that are m- more often than not, they're smaller. Uh, a lot of the time they're small players, um, relatively speaking. I mean, they're not like the size of Ticketmaster. They're just facilitated by other parties, um, like StubHub uh, or you know Craigslist and, and that sort of thing, where they're uh, they have a a platform to sell their tickets through. So of course those people don't want to play along. They're the ones actually getting hurt by it. Um, but I could see a, a way for the ticket masters of the world to play along uh, because, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, it is also it can be in their interest, where in the sense that by the way that we've built the platform is making those uh even a small band uh who's throwing a party now their tickets are available in the database if you want if we can call it that and um and that way even Ticketmaster could easily see and uh browse tickets for sale and can claim that and put it through their website if they if they find value in that so they they in theory could have access to a larger pool of um of content that they want to sell uh, or tickets that they want to sell so that that's one way that they could um profit uh from it and the second is what we just what i just ranted about before is that they are already providing a a good user experience on the front end so 
you know, there's, they don't really have to do that much different. So, so it almost seems like, um, a way forward might be to give them the opportunity to include more content on their site and potentially even increase the user experience. Um, so for the actual promoter, it seems like it would be a pretty beneficial idea in both directions, if that makes sense. I hope so. Yeah. I, I do think that at the moment, um, companies like Ticketmaster have uh, they have a lot of power, right? Yeah. Uh, so things are centralized around them. So a lot of the time, entrenched um, players don't really have an incentive to change if they're already winning, right? So yeah. that's the. I think that would be the, the hardest part is convincing them and showing them how this benefits them. Uh, and I'm sure there's there are ways that it doesn't benefit them. And so that's what we need to get around and, and try and prove out is where do they benefit? Where do they not? Uh, how do those balance against each other? But at the end of the day, uh, if it works the way that we hope it works, um, that you don't need the big players to come on board. They could just get disrupted by a new uh, a new player that comes into the market and does a better job. So, yeah, I definitely um, I, I see that the new player argument sometimes, but I do feel like that's kind of um, that's a hard one for me to justify. And the reason I say that is because in an industry like the music industry where you have like a set number of groups, not necessarily individuals, but um, the actual owners of the rights to these contra- or concerts, um, mm-hmm. how do you convince them to change to your platform from something like Ticketmaster, right? Uh, when they sure. obviously already have a pre-existing deal with Ticketmaster and Ticketmaster has a track record of selling tickets, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. again, I just want to clarify that a little bit more. If you were dealing with something like like classified ads, and uh, you're in the world of newspapers in 1991, and to get an ad in a classified in a newspaper, you need to pay like twenty dollars or something like that. And Craigslist comes along and says, "Hey, you can reach more people, and you don't have to pay anything." Like that, that becomes a pretty obvious, easy deal to make, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you don't have to like change deals that already exist because there's not many people that have like an ongoing set advertising deal for their classified for like, oh, I need to sell my couch. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. There's there's multiple players that we need to consider. And so there's the promoters of the events and then there's the ticket sellers. And I think the, the main... Uh, point for the promoters uh, is hopefully that uh, if they care about what's happening to their tickets after it's being sold on the primary market, um, then then this is a solution for them. So uh, it's, it's a way for them to avoid having somebody else make a bunch of money on the resale of their tickets if they care about that. I mean, there's also a lot of people will say that they are they don't care about that because they own the secondary platforms and so they're getting essentially a double dip when it gets resold anyways. Um, so that's that's a tough one <laughs> to yeah. uh, uh, to argue against. Um, and that's where the you know the the new uh, the, the new incoming uh, players don't necessarily have to start from the top, right they can they can grow and evolve um, over time. But I do think that there's still a benefit to the existing promoters. Uh, if they care about having some kind of control over their tickets, 
um, right from the get-go. I mean, if we look at what we've tried to build uh, or what we have built is a way for them to ensure that their ticket cannot be um, resold uh, or cannot be resold at a price that they're not happy with so that they're always targeting the right uh, market. Uh, because So par- part of the reason that tickets are not sold at market value is because promoters or often artists want to enable all of their fans to to come to the show and not just the ones with the most money. And so that's why they put the tickets at a lower price than they could get. Um, But then those tickets are sold to computers, essentially, um, because their fans aren't able to click a mouse faster than a computer can, which is obvious. And so, um, and so that that's where the issue is today is that if they really do want to sell to all of their fans, uh, and they want to be able to manage that, then a platform like ours, uh, is, is the way to solve that problem. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, trying to think if there's any other uh, interesting sort of insights that we could kind of pursue in the the ticketing sort of thought process but i think that we've kind of covered a lot of the most salient ones yeah i think that's uh we've covered quite a bit of info i I hope that uh i didn't rant too much uh (laughs) and that was (laughs) for for outsiders who haven't been working on this for the past uh, kind of year and a half two years that they can uh they can still get uh, get some value out of that discussion. So. Yeah, hopefully that provides a little bit of insight as to, to why we actually care about pursuing these projects, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we've been on for about 40 minutes now. So do you want to talk about some uh, some other stuff? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's uh, talk about someone who's not us. <laughs> yeah, hit me. Um, well, I'll just hit you with a couple headlines here that uh, that I've read about in the past week that I think are interesting. So... A few weeks ago, we talked about um, using dApps on mobile, um, mm-hmm. and one of the solutions that we proposed is an application called Toshi, um, and Toshi has just changed its name to Coinbase Wallet, so they, they weren't sold or anything like that. Um, Coinbase originally owned Toshi, and uh, they were running that project, but now it's been renamed. It's called Coinbase Wallet, and uh, I would say that if you're someone who is looking to use a Ethereum dApp on your phone, uh, Coinbase Wallet good choice yeah i mean even when we uh when we tried it out i was really happy about it because that was one of the problems that we were to bring it back to our our uh, travel key ticketing uh project that was one of the issues that we were trying to deal with is that uh interacting with the dap required uh pretty much required a desktop and um and so with uh, using Toshi, it essentially enabled our, our DAP to be run on a mobile phone, which is pretty important if you want to be able to go to a concert with a ticket. You can't expect people to bring their, their laptops with yeah. them. So, so the fact that it worked, and I tried it out on a couple other um, uh, apps that, that we found that uh, purported to run that, and, and Toshi was definitely the easiest uh, one of them. So it's interesting that they've, uh, they've rebranded. I think, uh, Coinbase is trying to just consolidate their offering around the Coinbase brand. So it totally makes sense. And, uh, even though they're a huge centralized player, I, I think they've done a really good, uh, a really good job with what they have built they build good products. And, uh, I also think they've been a huge value to the ecosystem and to the community uh, for onboarding because they've really made it easy for people to get into the space and, and buy crypto and, and buy Ethereum and, and interact. And so obviously with things like, um, 
with Coinbase uh, wallet that uh, it makes it a lot easier to do that. And yeah, I'm uh, pretty happy with what they've done. Yeah, I think so too. Um, for anyone who's interested in developing dApps, uh, the, the way that these apps currently work, uh, Toshi or Coinbase wallet and any of the other ones that exist that I've checked out, um, you don't actually have to build a mobile app or anything crazy like that. Uh, it just connects to your to your regular website. Um, so in our case, that's like a React app, and uh, it acts just like uh, just like MetaMask would interact with your application. That's how these mobile wallets work. Um, so like for us, we didn't have to do any work to actually convert our application over to working on Toshi, um, because we had already planned for a mobile view. Um, which I don't know, Dino. Do you remember uh, putting up a little bit of resistance to uh, to us building mobile views? No, I no. don't. I, what did it tell? Remind me. <laughs> yeah, I remember when Art first started working on uh, some ticketing screens, and uh, he uh, he said something about oh, but the mobile views are really slowing me down. And you're like, well, why are we building mobile views? And at the at the time, oh, right. at the time, Toshi right, wasn't right. really ready to go or anything like that. So we weren't sure what the exact route for like an application, like a mobile app would look like, right? Um, That's right. But uh, yeah. I'm glad that we did it because now we don't have to go back and, you know, redo work that we already did. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I think um, probably I'm guessing where my mind was at at the time was because there was no uh, good solution like Toshi, as you said. I mean, we knew about it, I think, at the time, but it just wasn't ready for prime time. Um, and so I was focused on functionality and uh, just wanted to get that, uh, get what we had working. Um, and so that's, that's probably why uh, I acted that way. But uh, <laughs> yes, I, I'm uh, happy that you guys didn't uh, listen to me on that uh, point. Yeah. Um, I think that's been one of the interesting things through this whole process, and you can probably attest to this better than I can, but um, because we're starting at such an early time in this technology, that the tools for people like yourselves, like uh, the developers that are working on it, um, are not fleshed out. And so you're building something, and then a month later, a new tool could uh, be developed or, or be made ready for prime time, and suddenly it either... Uh, pisses you off because you just finished solving that problem <laughs> <laughs> over the last two months that can now be solved in you know with a, a, a week of work or even less. Um, but at the others uh, on the other side, it's it's been interesting to be part of that kind of evolution to see these tools come up while we're building alongside them. Yeah, we've seen that a lot with um, not just like developer tools, but with the actual developer level kind of libraries and code bases that we're working with. Like even uh, even Web three just recently went into uh, version one point um, mm-hmm. which made a bunch of changes. I was actually trying to update uh, Treble Key earlier um, because we have some changes that conflict with the new ones. It hasn't been done yet, but um, yeah, I wanted to ask you. I know you you covered that a little bit on our, our Slack channel, but I wanted to ask you how uh, if you can explain a little bit more about how the changes in Web three affect uh, affect us. Um, I think you're talking just very about, briefly. Uh, <laughs> Are you talking about MetaMask going forward as well? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so for the most part, it's not like there's any one particular change that is kind of giving me a headache with Web3. Um, it's mostly just the fact that the APIs have changed over time, and uh, that, that breaks compatibility with certain things. And we can't really count on there being like a version 0.15 of Web3 running on any given machine, right? Like we have to assume that most people will be running on the latest version 
if they're mm-hmm. using, for example, MetaMask, which is updates itself, right? Right. Um, so the correct way to do things now, I would say, is to provide your own version of Web3, but you still depend on Web3 from MetaMask or Toshi or whoever is providing it to get the source of your, your blockchain, right? Um, mm-hmm. So when I say the source of the blockchain... Um, for example, there's a couple of test nets. So we use both Ropsten and the Rinkby test net. And those are, those are different sources, right? You have to connect to a different set of nodes in order to interact with those. And mm-hmm. where we get that information is from the user's wallet. Um, so MetaMask or Toshi or whatever. And that's, that's one of the changes that's going to be happening in MetaMask. And I think we talked about this last week as well, uh, briefly. But Yeah, you, do, you guys did touch on it. Uh, the the key changes I think are just that we're gonna have to be a little bit more careful with how we actually go about. We can't always assume that Web three is gonna be what's used. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be a little bit more intelligent about kind of asking the wallet what it's got and uh, using the new API from MetaMask in order to access the Ethereum provider. So I don't I don't think it should yeah. be anything crazy. I don't think that there'll be any structural changes needed in the application. Um, yeah, so actually, I just had a, a question that came to my mind. Um, with Given that MetaMask is pretty much the, the main way that <clears throat> people on desktops uh, will interact with uh, blockchain, at least at the moment, um, and let's, let's assume that uh, Toshi or, or Coinbase Wallet um, are, is one of the ways that you do it on mobile, essentially that means that if I'm, uh, if I'm using a live dApp on the mainnet, I need to set up. I actually need to import my uh, the same wallet into both of those platforms. Otherwise, I'm gonna go into. I'm going to log in through MetaMask on the desktop, and I'll have, let's say, 10 ETH in my account there. Uh, but then when I go into Toshi, I have to make sure that I'm on the same wallet there in order to. Uh, otherwise, I'll have a different balance in my account. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Which, which is going to int- introduce, um, and I mean, this isn't specific to us. This is anybody uh, dealing or interacting with DApps, but it's going to introduce some interesting uh, user um, issues uh, or interface issues for, um, uh, yeah, for for users that are are starting to onboard and uh, interact with DApps that way. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see at all the most common way of, um, say, being hacked on these networks would be like an insecure way of passing around. Um, that that private key that you need to connect to your wallet. Um, yeah, th- that's my concern. Is that it, no matter which one is your first uh, port of entry, um, in order to set up that same wallet on, let's say you started with MetaMask and now you want to interact through Toshi or through Coinbase Wallet, that's going to keep bugging me, um, <laughs> jumping around those two names. Yep. But um, if uh, if you want to now interact there you're going to have to, either you just have two separate wallets, or uh, which is probably a more secure way to do it, or you're going to need to set up your MetaMask wallet or the wallet you have through MetaMask in uh, Toshi as well. And um, in order to do that, you're going to have to bring in uh, your private keys. And as you say, that that creates a, uh, a potential uh, attack vector there for, for hackers to, uh, or somebody to try and spoof it in, in a way that you give them your private keys because your private keys or, or seed words is not something that you want to be using all, all the time. So Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of imagining how many people are going to email their private key to themselves. Yeah, just so they can copy and paste it. Into yeah, the exactly. Next, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's going to be a bit, uh, bit interesting. 
that does really open the door for uh, a third-party provider who could offer uh, a solution for storing your keys in a way that's secure. They're kind of like, like for example, like a My Ether wallet might be in a mm-hmm. position to kind of move into that space. Um, but also to provide things like recovery for a lost key or, you know, things like that. Yeah, I mean, those are, it's an interesting topic because there's, of course, two schools of thought on that, right? Is one is, yes, we're going to need third party providers to make this ecosystem easier for uh, the kind of average person uh, to use it uh, because we just are not used to, as people using the internet, we're not used to being this careful about uh, certain information. Um, And we're not used to, having a situation where if you lose it, it's gone forever. Uh, There's always been somebody that can recover your password or reset your password because you forgot it. Um, And so so that's definitely something that we see as being useful. But on the other side, as soon as you've got a third party that manages that, then it pretty much brings us back to a centralized party that controls that and is a single... Uh, attack vector for a hacker because if they can hack that third party then they have everybody that uses that platform Uh, they have all of those keys right yeah no it's definitely an interesting question about how do you build a system that could do that but still be usable Mm -hmm. i've heard a lot of proposals like i've i've seen some people suggesting that maybe the government could issue private keys with an identity god like okay like I, i know it just sounds a little bit nuts right but like yeah. Um, like some centralized authority that you could trust could say, okay, here is like, say, you know, your passport. And also it comes with this private key. But mm. even then I kind of, I kind of worry that, you know, these, uh, any central authority that's issuing them becomes the weak point, right? And yeah. If, if your weak point is, is already one of these, then what's the point of using private keys? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the one way that I could see something, and I haven't thought this through, but um, the one way that I could see a third party uh, working, uh, trying to straddle both sides, is to have something like a, um, either like a multi-sig wallet, so that, um, or a delay, some kind of a, a fixed delay in transactions, so that you you can do your normal transactions almost like with a credit card or with your your debit card you have a a limit per transaction right so i can do my normal transactions with a single signature but in order to unlock extra additional funds i have to get it i have to do some kind of extra step that essentially signs the transaction from that third party so that they're um they're protecting it in in some extra fashion or uh or that it's kind of a, a double layer where they might, uh, they don't actually, they can't actually see your private key, but they uh, store it and they um, behind uh, some kind of a hash so that they've got a second uh, a second key so that you can, again, I haven't thought this through, but somehow that you've got a, a multi-signature protection uh, to their uh, to their access of the key. So they can't actually see it, but they can still access it uh, with you. Um, yeah, I think that that would be kind of at a very broad level one way of, of implementing that system, right? I, I also could kind of see a market for like, what about companies that are just private that say, okay, what we'll do is we'll manage this information for you. But they're not an authority mm-hmm. in any way, right? Just providing, like you say, like a multi-sig wallet type of idea um, where they're just providing a service to store and manage private keys, probably for a fee. 
and the selling points they would have would be something like, okay, you can still recover your key, um, you know, with certain steps taken. Like say, say you were signed up in, initially with like proper identification. They'll say mm-hmm. if you are able to provide that identification again, then we are able to uh, recover your keys. Um, so even in the case of something horrible happening, like you could get a new driver's license and then, you know, potentially get your key back. Um, and at the same time, they'd probably have to advertise like a really stringent security policy. Um, but if you could find some combination of those, I think that there would be a market for key management that could actually mm-hmm. be pretty lucrative in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, the other thing that can happen is if, if that third party provides some sort of almost like the bank provides some sort of uh, deposit insurance um, that they can then refund you if they lose um, your funds, then people will be more willing to to use those third parties, right? Yeah. Um, because at the, at the moment, there's kind of this catch-22 that you've got these third parties offering certain services, but they don't offer any protection if they screw it up. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I'm sure that we will see that. And at the end of the day, what's also important is that people need to manage their money like they manage money in in the sense that I don't keep all of my money uh, that I have in the wallet of my, you know, in my jeans. So, so you need to keep money in different places and and store it in different places so that you've got small amount of money that's handy. So maybe you have a a soft, uh, a software wallet on your phone that you can spend from uh, with a small amount in it, but then you've also got more secure ways of storing uh, larger amounts. And maybe some of it is controlled only by you through a hard wallet or a paper wallet. And then some other amount is uh, stored with a third party so that if you lose one set of keys, you don't ever lose everything that you have. Yeah, I, th- I think that that seems reasonable. Um, I-, I think you're always going to deal with people like um, like people who keep their money under their bed frame, though, right? Sure. Like they, yeah. they might never be in a position to uh, to really take advantage of these tools. So I don't, I don't know if you could ever really market to those people, but... Yeah. In general, I mean, I think what's that... actually interesting, though, about those people is in crypto, those are the safest people, right? <laughs> in the sense that if, if they're printing uh, their a paper wallet and they've got it under their mattress, well, nobody can actually hack them, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I so guess, unless I, I guess know that true. I know, unless I know where they are and where they live and I break into their house um, and find that piece of paper that they've taped to the back of their the headboard of their bed or something like that i can't um i can't actually hack them from from the outside so um so it becomes interesting that going the old school uh analog way is actually the the most secure way to store uh your your crypto yeah i guess if you trust everyone who comes to your house on a daily basis then yeah well sure but I mean, if, yeah, if you've yeah. got it in a, in a place that's safe, not everybody that comes to my house is scouring my apartment for things that I hide. So uh, that, that you know of. <laughs> yeah, exactly that I know of. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though. I mean, we, we've talked about paper wallets and things like that on uh, in the meetups mm-hmm. and um, some of the different ways that people could use the technologies to prevent other people from accessing their account while still having access to it themselves when they need it. And it seems like concepts like the paper wallet and ideas like uh, hardware wallets are really hard for people to kind of understand how they actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can see either some better education or a maybe more obvious way of describing what the actual tool does 
having some value as well. Um, like if you tried to explain to someone why using a paper wallet is somehow more secure than keeping it in exchange or the password, like that, that's a that's a difficult topic to kind of explain to someone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll admit that I don't uh, store uh, on a paper wallet. I, I store the majority of my crypto on, on hardware wallets. Uh, but there, I find that an easier concept to grasp because if you think even about some banks, they have um, you have to have a fob to, to get into your bank account. Uh, if you've got a business account, a lot of the time they'll have that. Uh, or, uh, for example, my, my bank account in Germany, if I ever send money out of it, I have to then open up an app uh, on my phone that it's almost like a QR code type situation where I scan the QR code with this app that's been authenticated. Um, and that gives me a second code. So it's like almost like two-factor authentication. And, and to me, that that is a very similar uh, analogy to a hardware wallet where I'm trying to do a transaction, it appears on my, on my uh, hardware wallet and I have to uh, give it the okay or put in a, a pin into my hardware wallet to open uh, to access that wallet. Um, and so, so to me, I think those are pretty easy um, kind of analogies for people to understand uh, once they've done it a couple times. The only downside of the hardware wallet is it's not a great thing for day-to-day transactions because um, well, it's just you have to have the hardware plugged into a USB on your computer, so I mean, uh, it becomes a bit more. You complex. say that, but maybe not because people use bank cards every day. Uh, yeah. How does that? How does that relate to the hardware wallet? Well, I, I think that they're very uh, fundamentally similar, right? It's something you carry around with you, and it's not like a, it's not like on a hardware wallet you're actually storing your money inside the hardware wallet, right? Um, no. No, like it, um, it sort of is a similar concept. I, I the only point I'm trying to make here is that I don't think that it being a physical object is necessarily a problem. No, I mean I meant more from the interaction of how you uh, the current uh, workflow of how you use my, uh, funds that are on your hardware wallet. Um, yeah, well, is, it's not much more complicated than plugging it in and entering the code, is it? Um, well, I mean, you always have to, there's, there's an app or either an app or some kind of online interface that you have to go through, uh, like my crypto or my ether wallet. Um, and so you put in the pin to unlock, uh, the hardware and then you select which, uh, currency you want to go on, uh, or that you want to see, you open that, uh, the, the software on your computer and then you make the transaction from there. So it's not, you know, for walking around in the street and doing day-to-day transactions, that particular workflow doesn't work. Um, yeah, but it's not and, its not different from like typing in your credit card information. Um, well, it, it it is in the sense that the vendor is not gonna have your hardware wallet. Okay, uh, sure, I, I just, I mean for like the actual, like how hard is it for a user to do? Right. Obviously, yeah. there's, a, there's a huge amount of technical differences between typing in a credit card information and using a hardware wallet. But sure, just like sure. for the actual friction involved, like I don't think it's that much different of a user experience. Yeah, I mean, I probably wouldn't recommend walking around with a hardware wallet because of how much, in theory, if you're using your hardware wallet to store a large portion of your funds, then it's not something you want to walk around in the street with because anybody just needs to have they don't need your private key anymore they just need your four or six or eight digit pin um which is kind of how it works with bank cards but um with a bank card as soon as they have it i can just call up the bank and um and cancel it or block that 
particular card from working with a hardware wallet. If they've got my pin, I need to get home as fast as I can, pull up my my seed phrase, um, uh, get that, uh, launch that that wallet, uh, or restore that wallet into some other uh, platform, and I have to do it for each one of my funds separately, unless I've got a back like a, an extra uh, unused hardware wallet at home. Um, and, and try and transfer that before whoever just stole my other wallet and my pin uh, is able to, to transfer my funds out of that wallet. So um, it's, a, it's a little bit more of a, uh, a headache. Whereas I would see, you know, for day-to-day transactions, why not just use a software wallet? Like I'm walking around with my phone anyways. Um, there's no reason not to just use that. And it's got a camera on it. I just scan the, the, the barcode um, that I'm, of the address that I'm sending my money to. I scan it, uh, I can authenticate it with my thumb uh, on my iPhone, and I'm done, right? It's, yeah, that, it's a lot more. That's fair. And the uh, the phone payments are taking off now. Yeah, at least, I'm seeing at that least, a lot. At least here in Canada. Mm-hmm. I know that, uh, actually, Art uses his a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. maybe I should ask him about yeah. it next week, because yeah. I've never I've never used it on my phone, but um, it seems like a good idea, like, I don't really know. Yeah. I don't really know why I carry around cards when my phone could well, do the same thing, right? I mean, I'm I'm living in backwater Germany, so um, here everybody still uses cash. Uh, so <laughs> things like Apple Pay or you know pay with your phone don't really exist. So um, I'm just happy if they accept credit card here. <laughs> yeah, so. I don't know. Canada seems to be pretty good about uh, adopting these technologies pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even when you talk to people from the states, they're pretty surprised. Like when we first got uh, tap for mm-hmm. cards, there was a lot of people that I knew who were uh, from the states, like uh, other students, and uh, they they like were confused about the situation. Yeah, I, I think Canada is actually really uh, fast at adopting uh, pay uh, payment services and platforms. The only thing that um, and so firstly, I 100% agree with you. I think Canada's, as far as adoption across uh, the the population uh, and uh, across vendors and, and banks, uh, we're way ahead of uh, the U.S. Um, the, the one thing that in North America in general sucks is uh, transfers, like bank-to-bank transfers, yep. is just a huge pain. Uh, whereas here, uh, that's actually really easy. It's free. It's the most... Uh, convenient and and most encouraged way to to send money like if, even a few weekends ago uh, I, I ran out of cash and I asked my friend to just draw money because we were closer to his bank uh, like a, an ATM of his bank so he drew the money gave it to me and then um, when I was back home I just went onto my uh, onto my bank and I transferred the money into his account there was no e-transfer with a password and whatever else i can just send the money into his account um and there's no like limits on how often you can do that there's no charge for doing that uh that is just the way you send money around um yeah it's surprising that that's not more common here because it seems like seems like that would be the easiest thing for them to implement right um, I believe it's got to do with the technology, the backend technology that's used for banking and <laughs> funnily enough for how they track the ledger um, <laughs> uh, in, in North America versus in Europe, they use a different system. Um, and so that's why in North America, it actually costs them money. Like it, it's an expensive uh, way that they're, uh, they're using for that. And that's why it's, it's not as easy to just put in somebody's bank account number and say send. Um, but uh 
yeah, I, I'm not deep enough into banking technologies um, to, to be able to explain it any better than I just did. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'm sure that there's a reason for it. I, I imagine if the banks had an easy way of doing it, they would they would because that would be a good product to sell to people, right? Yeah, in theory. I, mean, I would hope so. Of course, they're charging for it now, so they're probably making a couple <laughs> pennies. Yeah, that, um, that doesn't hurt. So they they don't uh, they don't have an incentive to take it away except for people complaining. Uh, but the only people that complain are people that have actually done it overseas and realize there's an easier way. Um, so yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think we're at uh, almost an hour and ten minutes now. Yeah. So this is actually uh, this is one of our longer episodes. It seems to be that way when we get a guest and we you know talk for a long time. Yeah. Well, I, I think. It, it makes sense too, because you guys, uh, you and Art, talk in the office all the time, so you probably have less uh, less to ca- catch up on uh, when you get on the podcast. But uh, um, yeah, no, it's been it's been fun though. I appreciate uh, appreciate you guys inviting me on. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you probably um, you're probably mostly available uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you through uh, Slack as well, right? Yeah, so uh, either uh, through the Slack, um, actually the Vic Blockchain Slack. Uh, what's the address for that one? Um, it's uh, vicblockchain.now.sh. I'll put it in the description of the uh, the podcast here. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I'm on that uh, channel, uh, just at Dino Chilotti. Um Otherwise, I'm also on uh, Twitter at Dino Chilotti, And uh, I mean, also... Uh, by email i'm just email at dino Chilotti. so i'm everywhere at dino <laughs> <laughs> all right well that makes it pretty easy yeah um we had a lot of we had a lot of topics written down for today that we didn't get to so it's um, oh, okay maybe some, uh, some stuff left for for you and art next week yeah, I maybe guess. next week we'll have some uh, some interesting concepts to discuss here but um i actually i really enjoyed this conversation i think that we've kind of covered a lot of interesting ground yeah, no, it. Uh, I I didn't know what to expect, so I'm happy with uh, with the conversation we had. It's been, uh, as you said, it's been really interesting to to kind of dig a little deeper into what we've been working on and uh, all of these concepts. So yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you on.